All right, go ahead and be seated, would you please? Uh, service today will be a little bit different, a little bit modified, streamlined a little bit. We're not going to be uh, doing an offertory prayer or passing offertory plates this morning. Uh, we have buckets at the doors as you're leaving. You can give your offering that way. Uh, we want to, I want to personally thank you for being here uh, this morning and as we wait to see whatever's going to happen today with our weather, I am glad that you braved, braved it to get out today. makes it a lot easier to preach when there are actual people in here rather than preaching in isolation to a video screen that it's just, it was awkward. We've been there. We've done that plenty of times. I don't necessarily want to have to go back to that type of service again. And so I was committed to be here this morning, no matter what. Uh, I, I'm just a couple of miles from the church, two major roads, and I'm here. Uh, Joel's the same way, major roads, and he gets here. Uh, two miles, I'll walk if I have to in order to get here to have church. At least to be able to preach to an empty room so those that are at home can watch and see. And so we're going to do that today. Uh, open your Bibles, Romans chapter 1. Last week we did part 1 of verse 16 and 17. Today we're going to do part 2. Next week we're going to do part 3. Take our time as we go through this journey together. Last week we saw that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is good news that comes from God. It's not his good news, rather it is good news sent by God himself. This morning, we're going to discover that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to save. Romans chapter 1, verse number 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now that word power is a Greek term, dunamis. It's from that Greek term, we get our English word, dynamite. And so, as God, He is the embodiment of power. God possesses all power. That is to say that He is and has omnipotent power within Himself. Therefore, God can do and act as He chooses. I want to take just a moment to, uh, to give you some scriptures that will describe just what the power of God is like. And so scripture tells us in Exodus chapter 15, verse number 6, that God has majestic power. He says, your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse number 39, we see that he has the irresistible power of death and life. It says, see now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. We see in Scripture that his power is great. Psalm 79, verse number 11 says, Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power to preserve those who are doomed to die. And so not only is his power great, his power is strong. 
Psalm 89, verse number 13 declares, You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. And so, His power is great. His power is strong. His power is everlasting. Isaiah chapter 26, verse number 4 declares, Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Not only that, the power of God is effectual. Isaiah chapter 43, verse number 13 says, Even from eternity I am He, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. It says, I act, and who can reverse it? The answer is, no one. No one. Jeremiah declared of God in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse number 12, says that it is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding, He has stretched out the heavens. And through the the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord said of Himself in Jeremiah chapter 27, verse number 5, He says, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by My great power and My outstretched arm. That is just a small sampling of what the Word of our Lord has to say about the power of our God. Scripture is clear. God alone has the power to save. The heart of verse number 16 is that the Gospel is the saving power of our God. Which means that salvation is not only initiated by God, but it is carried out through His power. Dwight L. Moody once made this statement, and I love it. He said that the gospel is like a lion. All the preacher has to do is open the door of the cage and get out of its way. Powerful understanding about the power of God to save. So the gospel carries with it the omnipotence of God. The omnipotence of God means that it is God's power alone that is sufficient to save us, to to grant us eternal life with Him. The Bible makes it clear that we cannot be spiritually changed. We cannot be saved by by good works, by, by giving enough, by attending church. There's no way that we can be spiritually changed by any other method or any other means other than through the power of God. That's it. We can't even be saved by by keeping God's law. God's law was given to us to show us our complete inability to meet His divine standards on our own. In other words, the the law wasn't given so that we might be saved. No, the law was given to reveal our sin and to lead us to the saving grace of God. So only the power of God is able to overcome our sinful nature and grant us spiritual life. So the point is this. God has chosen to use His power in a mighty way by sending us the good news that is the gospel of salvation. Being all-powerful, think about it, God could have easily just spoken the words and wiped mankind off of the face of the earth as a result of their rebellion against Him. But instead, God chose to give us the good news 
of salvation. This reveals a critical truth about our about the character and the nature of our God. The fact that He chose not to wipe out mankind, but rather to reveal the good news of salvation shows us that God's nature is love. His nature is love. He's full of compassion and grace. And so God will save all who believe. Belief is the one condition for salvation. To believe in the Scripture comes from this Greek word, uh, pistero. And that word means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. It means to, to be so fully convinced that you're willing to put all of your trust, you're, you're willing to rely fully and completely on the thing to which you're convinced about. We must always remember that a person who really believes commits themselves to what they profess to believe. If a person does not commit themselves to what they profess to believe, then they truly do not believe. That's not a a salvific belief. Because true belief results in or is evidenced by commitment. Those two things go together. It gives us a beautiful picture of what saving faith is all about. What genuine faith truly looks like. Commitment is an excellent picture of the kind of faith that truly saves a person. Which means, follow with me, what that's saying is that saving faith is not just having head knowledge of spiritual truths. Saving faith is not just having a a mental conviction. Saving faith is not just an intellectual agreement. Saving faith is not just believing the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Saving faith is not just believing history. That Jesus once lived and walked upon this earth as Savior in the same manner that George Washington once lived and walked upon this earth as our first president. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is not just believing the words spoken by Jesus Christ in the same manner that one might believe the words spoken by someone by like Martin Luther King Jr. It's not enough. We must be willing to respond to the message that we proclaim to believe in. In Romans chapter 10, verse number 16, Paul writes and he says, However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? That word to heed means to obey on the basis of having paid attention to. So so what is he saying? He says, Paul is saying, they did not all pay attention to, they did not all obey the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? There's that Greek word, pastero, who has believed or has been so convinced to the extent that they put their complete trust and reliance upon. That's the message that he's trying to declare. So yes, it's true 
a person must agree for the message to be true, but believing facts and facts alone is not enough to produce salvific faith. Because mere agreement to something or mere acknowledgement that something is true does not always lead to action. A person can know something is true, but that knowledge doesn't necessarily produce a change in that person's life. I'll give you an example. We can know that eating healthy and exercise is a right thing to do. It's the right way to live. But yet, in that knowledge doesn't necessarily mean we're willing to change our appetites, to change our diet, or to actually begin to do some type of physical exercise and routine. And so, we can know the truth, we can agree with that truth, and yet just the knowledge about that truth hasn't produced a change in our lives based upon what the truth has revealed. Why do I say that? Because the sad reality is that a person may believe and and know all the facts about Jesus as being Savior of the world, and yet still do nothing about that knowledge. Never making the decision to submit and surrender our entire life unto Him. That person who doesn't follow through with that type of commitment, that person doesn't know saving faith. At least in the manner to which the Bible talks about faith. Why? Because they lack a commitment. They lack that surrendering of their lives and of their will unto their Master. That's why it was so important as we began our study through the book of Romans that we just spent an entire message over looking over the one word, a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ. Because that's what it means. It means we willingly lay down our lives and give up our lives, surrendering control of our lives unto our Master, our Lord and Savior. That's saving faith. The commitment of a person's total life to Jesus. It's the personal commitment to give Jesus everything. It includes trusting Jesus to take care of our past. It includes trusting Jesus to provide for us in our present. And it includes believing that Jesus is going to redeem all things in the future. Saving faith is a commitment of our entire being, all that we are and all that we have unto Jesus. When the Bible speaks about faith, it speaks about commitment, a personal commitment to the truth. And so when someone hears the truth and agrees to that which is true and then does something about that truth, they will commit and yield their life or submit their lives to the truth. It's a call of commitment. It's not just a call of acknowledging something that is true. Yes, you acknowledge it, but you also commit to the thing to which you've acknowledged. So when the truth becomes a part of our being, 
It becomes so much a, a part of our being that it begins to change our attitude. It begins to affect our behavior. It, it begins to change our character because we believe to the extent that we're willing to completely trust in, rely upon the thing to which we confess. That type of belief changes a person. It's not enough to say uh, certain words and think that we get a free pass to go ahead and live our lives any way that we please or any way that we choose. That's not saving faith. Saving faith acknowledges our, our wretchedness, acknowledges our great need of God's grace and his love and his forgiveness, acknowledges the salvific work accomplished in and through Jesus Christ, and submits their lives to all of it, saying, here I am, Lord. I believe, I trust, I receive the forgiveness that you've extended, and I give my life as a result of it all. Back to verse number 16. The reality is that God will save a person who believes, a person who truly commits their life to the gospel of Jesus. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now Paul recognizes the universal nature of salvation by faith when he adds the phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And throughout his letter, we're going to see uh, Paul describe the Jewish people in many different ways. In fact, in chapter 11, verse number 1, he describes them as God's chosen people. In chapter 3, verse number 2, they're described as being the custodians of God's revelation. And when we get to chapter 9, verse number 5, uh, they're described as the people through whom Christ came. And so here, what Paul is saying is that because the Jews were God's chosen people, because they were the custodians of God's revelation, because they were the people through whom Jesus came, the Jews have the preference of privilege It's expressed historically in a chronological priority. What am I saying? It means that Salvation goes beyond the Jews and extends to the Greek or to the Gentiles as well. One of the mysteries that Paul always writes about, the mystery that was revealed unto him, was the mystery of how salvation goes beyond just Jews to all people. And Paul was given the assignment to declare that mystery unto the world. The Lord himself states in John chapter 4, verse number 22, he says that salvation is from the Jews. And so what you'll see, the pattern in Paul's life as you read through the book of Acts is that when Paul would go to proclaim the good news, he would go to proclaim the good news to the Jews first. That's how he would start. I'll give you some examples. Acts chapter 13, verse number 5. It says, when they read Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So where did they begin? They began in the synagogue among the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. That's just one example. If you want to look these up later 
I'll give you some more. Acts chapter 13, verse number 14. You'll find it in Acts chapter 14, verse number 1. Acts 17, you'll see it in verse 2, verse 10, and verse 17. Acts chapter 18, you'll find it in verse number 4 and in verse number 19. And then in Acts chapter 19, you'll see it in verse number 8. So Paul's pattern of ministry was to go and to proclaim the gospel to the Jews first. But Paul often received rejection from the Jews when he would proclaim the truth unto them. And so we'll see in Scripture that what would happen upon his rejection is that Paul would then turn to proclaim it to the Gentiles. I'll give you some examples. Acts chapter 13, verse number 46 says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold... We are turning to the Gentiles. The two other times that you can see this happen in Paul's ministry are found in Acts chapter 18, verse number 6. And then Acts chapter 28, you'll see it from verse 25 to verse 28. So here's the beautiful reality of what Paul is trying to express. is that God saves all nationalities salvation is extended to all who will believe so it goes beyond just jews it's now been extended to everyone else so so the point is twofold here the gospel is god's power because it is god's omnipotent power it can reach any nationality any person no matter who they are no matter what they've done. Man, think about that. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, good news is the power of God to bring salvation. So when we understand that it has the power to save, no matter who, no matter what, then the second truth we need to understand is that no one is to be excluded from hearing the good news. As messengers of Jesus Christ, we're to proclaim the good news to all people, to everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter their race, no matter their education, no matter their background, no matter their color, no matter their circumstance, no matter their political affiliation, no matter if they're uh, pro-life advocates, pro-choice advocates, we're to declare the gospel to all. No matter their depravity, we're to declare the gospel unto them. How dare us look at other people and then based upon our judgments, deem that person unworthy of hearing the gospel. When it has the power to bring salvation to their life. It means we should proclaim it to everyone. Pedophiles need the gospel as well. Abusers, adulterers, 
drunkards, terrorists. They all need the gospel. We're to proclaim it to all people. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, he says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who, came, who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel has the power to change lives. So the salvation that Paul speaks about, you need to understand, goes beyond just the forgiveness of our sins, as awesome and as important as that is. But it goes beyond just the forgiveness of sins, and it includes a full scope of deliverance from everything that was the result of Adam's fall. Put it this way, the forgiveness of sin includes churchy words that we use, justification, sanctification, glorification. In other words, it includes uh, us being set right with God. That's to be justified. It it includes our our growing in in holiness and and Christ-like maturity. That's the process of sanctification. And it will, will include glorification that future day when we will appear in the likeness just as our lord and savior i've often said there are three tenses to salvation the past tense what we've been saved from the present tense on what we're being saved to become and the future tense of what will come in the future and so the salvation that has been brought by the gospel is a process. It's a process. With respect to the past, we have been delivered, set free from the penalty of sin. That's justification. We'll get to it eventually, but in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What a beautiful reality. That's that's awesome. But God doesn't just stop with that. There's more. There's that ongoing work of salvation to to be sanctified or to be changed into the likeness and to the character of our Lord. So, So with regard to the present, We are being saved from the practice or or from the the power of sin. We're not completely set free from it. We don't have complete victory over it right now, but we're in this process of growth and maturity so that we can have victory over the presence of sin in this world. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Then verse 2 and 3, it says, with all humility, gentleness, and with patience, showing tolerance with one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why did I use that reference? I used that reference to show us how we are in this process of sanctification, which means 
We're not all at the same part in the process. Some of us are, are further along in that process. Some of us are really new in that process of being sanctified, of being cleaned up in, in our life and in our living. Therefore, understanding that this is a process, Paul writes to encourage us to be patient with one another, to be humble towards each other, to be forgiving always, knowing that this is a process. So, so let, what the church tends to do is to, to kick out or to cast aside a brother or sister in Christ when they begin to struggle and stumble upon or in sin. And instead of being patient with them and loving on them and caring for them and ministering to them, what the church will often do will be to ignore them, to isolate them, to try to separate them. And that's not what unity is all about. We're to be patient with each other. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And doing everything that we can to live peaceable among our brothers and sisters. To encourage and to support, to admonish and to correct. But in that admonishment and in that correction, it's all done through a spirit of love. Seasoned with grace. And it's to the future. One day we will be delivered wholly, completely from the presence of sin. And in that day of glorification, we will become like our Savior. Scripture tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. That's the future tense of our salvation. In closing, I would say that salvation can be described both negatively and positively in terms of what it saves us from and what it saves us to. And so salvation saves us from the consequences that our sin deserves. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes in verse 8 and 9, he says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. That's what it saves us from. But not only does it save us from something, it saves us to something as well. So salvation saves us from the consequence of sin and it saves us to the blessed state of being in peace with God and having the grace of God. Earlier in chapter 5, Paul says it like this in verse 1 and 2. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Salvation. The power of God to make us right with Him 
to forgive us of our consequence of sin, to change us into the likeness, into the character of His Son, and to be fully secured, set free from the very presence of sin in the future. So as we close this morning, the question becomes, do you believe? Do you believe the good news of God? I'm not asking, can you acknowledge it? I'm not asking you, you, do you agree that the statement is true? But biblical belief. Are you convinced to the extent that you fully trust in and rely upon what Jesus has done for you? Do you believe? Do you agree with that truth? And has that agreement in your life produced a commitment from you to submit and to surrender unto the King of Kings? If so, then you are recipients of the peace of God and and the grace that, that God extends has been received into your life. If not, if there's no commitment, if there's no desire for change and for Christ-like growth and maturity, I would warn you that you might just be stuck in a head knowledge of the Savior without fully committing to the belief that Scriptures demand from us. My prayer this morning is that we can all leave here today knowing whether or not we truly believe. And if you believe then ask God to give you the strength and give you the understanding, His wisdom, to know what it is that He's trying to change in you, to remove from you, so that you could be more of a reflection of His love, His grace unto this world. If it's not true and you don't fully believe to the extent that you fully trust and rely upon, my prayer for you, friend, is that the Holy Spirit would bring that change in your life and that you would experience the power of God Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, for this church, for your word. God, put upon all of us a heaviness, a weightiness of a a strong desire to proclaim the good news in our world. God, may we stop withholding the gospel from those that we deem unnecessary or unneeded but may we value everyone. May we love you enough to be faithful and obedient to what you call and expect from us, and that is to take your message unto the whole world. So God, we know that we'll never be faithful of taking it to the world when we neglect taking it to our own community, or even more so when we neglect even speaking about it in our own homes. Father, help us, convict us, guide us, strengthen us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.